Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Dr. Liz Savage, who joined me to talk about the concept of Dickensian cryptozoology. Liz earned her PhD from Durham University on 19th century literature, focusing on Charles Dickens and the Uncanny. Her current research continues to focus on the strange and unusual in literature film, and other media. Dickensian cryptozoology is the subject of a paper she has written which proposes a new approach to the writer's texts and examines the character and places he created through the lens of creature myths and legends that persist today. Central to these ideas are his Mudfog papers, a fantastical set of stories complete with robots, circus fleas, and over-enthusiastic scientists studying the mathematical implications of children's books, amongst many other things. Later Dickens' works are also included to help demonstrate how cryptozoological and Fortean readings of character and places are not only possible, but create a fun, unique and unexpected research angle for both seasoned academics and those new to Dickens. We begin the interview by talking about the otherworldliness of Dickens' writing, and how there are examples of that in many works. We then discuss the Mudfog papers themselves, and some of the stories and characters which represent the ideas Liz is interested in. Please note that Liz's sound for the interview wasn't perfect, but it's a minor issue, and this conversation is a great listen for this time of year. Enjoy! Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. The concept of Dickensian cryptozoology is a really interesting one, to begin with, can you just sort of give a brief overview of what it, what it is and, and how you came to be interested in this subject? Yeah, of course. Um, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. Um, when I was doing my PhD at Durham, um, I was kind of looking at the spectrum of Dickens, like Dickensian characters um, throughout his, his, his writing and kind of finding a... Um, a kind of gradient they they seem to kind of latch onto, which was either animal or machine. Um, and so I kind of played around with that because of course Dickens writing during the Industrial Revolution. And it's interesting to see how his villainous characters at the start um, are described in very animalistic ways. Whereas as his writing goes on in later books, his villainous characters are more machine. And that switch also happens with um, his heroes they become they're mechanical at first very much cliches like Oliver and Nell and then you get to our mutual friend and you have Eugene Rayburn who is you know compared he says mutton as a uh, man as I am and mutton as you are to sheep at one point um he's he's not at all um, um a mechanical person um but at the time, I think I was very focused on the mechanical because of the Industrial Revolution and because I could draw things um, from today and our current technology boom. Um, I didn't really think of the animal stuff until relatively recently. Um, I was having a, uh, a exchange on Twitter, academic Twitter, <laughs> and um, someone wrote, would there be aliens in Dickens? Could you could you read into Dickens and you know aliens? And I was like, well, there's the pug scene in Mudfog that is like kind of a um, an alien autopsy or you know an alien abduction. And then I was like, you know, you could probably actually do a decent reading of cryptozoology um, altogether with that. And it just kind of lined up well. 
um, that the conference was coming up um, and it's been delayed again. It's not until February now, um, but it just, it just happened um, kind of organically. Um, I caught the idea, thought about the other side of my research and also the position I'm in at work. Um, I, I'm, I, I catalog SPR material, which is the Society of Psychical Research. So I'm kind of knee deep in it all. Um, that's how it came about. Sorry, that was probably a very long, long story, or could have been shorter. <laughs> no, that was great. I I haven't read uh, a whole lot of Dickens, but I I do. I am familiar with his ghost stories, and he wrote about ghosts quite a lot. Um, so I suppose these other fourteen concepts is not it's not particularly unusual that he would have been writing about them if he was already writing about or and wrote about the supernatural anyway I, uh, yeah exactly and i think too um in terms of like the animalistic side of cryptozoology he was very much a performer and you know, he would go on these tours where he'd do readings and he'd act out you know all of the parts and I can just imagine that the more, you know, animalistic the character, the more exciting it is. Like when he, like reading out a Bill Sykes um, from Oliver Twist, um, reading out that kind of scene um, and being able to really kind of delve into um, that, um, that kind of uncanny valley um, between the human and the, or the familiar human and the unfamiliar. Um, which is also something I kind of delve into is the concept of the uncanny, which I think fits quite well with cryptozoology. Mm. A little earlier, you were, you were talking about how Dickens' writing sort of moved from from the animalistic to the machine. And are, are there are there familiar characters in his work that sort of represent those concepts? Yeah, um, you know the the this gradient that I was writing about you know it's it's very kind of broad so to say it's not a very it's not a uh, distinct thing and in, in that everything falls into a certain category but there is a trend um, I would say if you look at characters like um, Oliver Twist and Little Mel from um, Oliver Twist and the Old Curiosity Shop um, you you see very cliche stock kind of characters that are oddly robotic um, if you if you read Oliver Twist, it's very odd because he's born in a workhouse, but he speaks perfect English compared to the Artful Dodger, who has, you know, a similar upbringing, um, but has, you know, a very clear accent. And it's this idea that his, um, his, you know, his elevated birth, which he learns of in the end, is already imprinted on him or preloaded, so to say he's already formatted for that kind of life. Um, Nell is kind of similar and, um, and she reminded me more of like the cryptozoology thing with like the black eyed kids and stuff because she's kind of freaky. She's got that adult sense about her and she walks through snow barefoot and she just has these odd things where characters say, oh, you know, Mrs. Jarley owns this waxwork in the old curiosity shop walk this waxwork traveling show and she just remarks constantly to Nell about how Nell reminds her of one of the waxworks um, and Nell even sleeps among the waxworks so that's sort of the popular mechanical characters early Dickens and I, I think the the one that kind of sums up um, monstrous villainy is Quilp um, because he's just He's the villain of the old curiosity shop, but he's described in ways that are just, you know, he's got wiry hair and and like long nails. And it's, you know, he's just, just, he's this creature that you, you think is human. You look at him and you think human, but then at the same time, you're kind of like, wait a minute, there's aspects of him that are, I'm sorry, my dog is... For some reason. I did wonder what this was. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's okay. To, um, he's trying to, um, I have to, I'm sitting downstairs because my husband's upstairs and um, Bertie has been gravitating towards downstairs recently. Um, sorry, that was a tangent. Um, but to, uh, 
to get back to what I was saying, I think, as I said, I think Quilt is a good example of the villainous, um, the animalistic villain. And then when we get, you know, towards the end of Dickens' writing, um, I think, you know, I mentioned Eugene Rayburn as the sort of animal hero. Um, and he's really played off, or he, he's re he really plays off the villain of the piece, which, I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a, I don't want to call him the villain because I think it's a bit more complicated, but for our reasons, he's the villain. Um, Bradley Headstone, who's a teacher and is very much of that kind of learning by rote thing. If things don't go the way he think he thinks they should in place, you know, things aren't, if things aren't how he expects them to be, you know, then he's kind of lost and um he gets really upset when he's spurned by someone by a, a woman that he thinks well you're you know you should marry me that's just the right thing to do that's the obvious thing to do you know he doesn't think about emotion he's just locked into societal expectations and societal norms um but again you have characters that also break kind of the mold um as with a little well a little door it's kind of earlier um because i was just thinking of character rigaud who in an, in an adaptation is played by andy circus um and if if you're familiar with andy circus's body of work he's you know usually playing some sort of ape-like monster or humanoid um and he he plays rigaud just that way and i think it's quite perfect so you you have you know I think those, if I had to point out popular characters, probably, I'd probably lean towards those first. But obviously it gets a bit more complicated as it goes on. Yeah. One thing I'm interested in as well is, uh, as I understand it, quite a lot of his his stories would be sort of go out periodically. They would be released in mm -hmm. small sections in, in newspapers and, and yeah. in that way. Did that influence the characters he might include in his stories and I suppose were those newspapers were they covering real world events about mysterious creatures and the sorts of things that might in some way influence him um well he only published really in newspapers I believe at the start of his career because a lot of his publications then were kind of within his own publications like Household Words or Master Humphrey's Clock um the Oliver Twist ends up in Bentley's Miscellany, which is um, a uh, is just a collection of writing from other authors and stuff that comes out came out I think monthly or something, and so he kind of started the serial then, or well he had the Pickwick Papers first, which hold on let me double check the Pickwick Papers, um, and where they were published because I can for some reason my my knowledge is. It tends to lean towards mud fog and nothing exists before or after it at times. <laughs> um, so I think I think they might have been just published on their own as um, as segments, um, which you know he did also um, throughout the uh, throughout his his publishing career. Um, so when when you look at these sorts of uh, single publications say you do get the ads and once in a while you get some extra stuff but I would assume that or I would pause it at least um, that when it came to works that uh, collections with other authors like Bentley's or like Dickens's later collections um, I think they probably had a bit of fun you know um, exchanging ideas I mean he was friends with Wilkie Collins and you know Wilkie Collins has that eerie aspect about him um about his writing i mean he was a bohemian i don't think that's quite eerie <laughs> i think dickens was, i think dickens was a bit jealous of him if not incredibly jealous of him in terms of his lifestyle but that's a, another topic entirely but um i think you know when say, take the signal man for instance that was part of a, a story set that was called among the junction um and so he had other writers with him so i think again i think it's more a case of the um writers inspiring writers rather than um uh specific or that than little bits of, of 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 news obviously he he worked those into you know his writing as well but just in terms of the paranormal i think 
Um, there's nothing that I, can, I can think of exactly that would um, that would that would say that. I'm sure there's probably a Dickens scholar somewhere yelling at me um, for saying that. <laughs> um, but um, but I, I I think you know um, yeah I think again it, it comes down to his interests and what he finds I guess exciting um, and also what his audience responds to. Um, which is, you know, I think is more uh, prevalent in his earlier work than later. But yeah, um, that's a, just a long-winded way of saying. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he would would. I mean, he'd obviously have access to newspapers and stuff like that. But I don't think um, his writing appearing next to news like that had uh, was was something that happened often. Right. Sorry, that was a really long-winded explanation. <laughs> it's fine, really. Don't worry about it. But you made a good point earlier on. I, when I was preparing for our conversation, I, I, I was thinking about the stories that he's written, and they're not really, in a way, they're not set in like the contemporary world of the time. They are, they are sort of like an else world. They're, they are otherworldly. They're the, and the characters that inhabit those stories do have those unusual qualities so I mean was Dickens intentionally doing that do you think or was that sort of it was just part of his style I suppose in terms of developing characters who have these sorts of qualities well I think and this is just completely me 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 being you know just kind of throwing a guess out there um from what I know um you know I think it was something I don't. I don't think it's something he was entirely aware of. I think at points he obviously was, but um, I'm just thinking of like the narrator in Bleak House, um, not Esther, but the other. Um, there's a third person. Well, yeah, there's a third person narrator, um, and there's just this tone of voice that you like. You know, he's never the narrator's never named. Um, it's just this third person narrator who seems to be able to go in and out of you know all. Of, you know the the stories and be present at very critical moments, um, but I think I would I, I want to say that his uncanny ability to 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 write uncanniness. <laughs> I wonder if it wouldn't be down to his night walking, because he would he would walk just you know at night. He would he would walk so fast, just through the night through London. Um, he just kind of had this never-ending energy and it was a way to burn that energy but and he he writes about his walks and everything and but there's something about nighttime London especially Victorian nighttime London because it's a city which is a new thing in the in the 19th century it doesn't really sleep and he you know he comes into contact with people he wouldn't see during the day and the dark you know it it automatically distorts people when you're in the dark um and I feel like um, when he's writing about London, he has those encounters in mind. Um, obviously, when it comes to time period, he does you know go, does change up time period from you know uh, from time to time. But but I think you know if if we look at the contemporary settings, I I really wonder how much of that uncanniness is is due to his love of walking through London at night. Um, on his own very quickly <laughs> being assaulted by people once in a while um, but yeah that's uh, that I mean I feel like that would have had a really big impact on how he saw the city even in the light because some you know places are so different in the dark you know or in, in, in the light I mean I'm just thinking about when I go um, so the Cambridge University Library has this huge tower and I go up it a few times a day um but it looks so different in the dark even though i was there like I i'd be in it an hour before but there's just something different um and that's what i i think that difference is is what he's consciously and unconsciously pulling on hmm mm, fascinating and now there are there characters in his stories that sort of have that nighttime quality to them that 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 sort of lend themselves to sort of a, I don't know, maybe like a vampiric quality or, or something, something sort of associated with the nighttime. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of, um, oh, since it's Christmas, I've been thinking of a Christmas carol <laughs> in relation to a lot of different things. Um, but um, I'm just thinking of Scrooge walking home after work and, you know, he, the, the doorknob distorts and then he's alone in a dark house. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, the start of, you know, the real terrors. And I think that, I mean, if I had to point to a, dark moment i'd say that um but again um there are other moments where darkness really plays a role um in the beginning of bleak house in um esther's narration she's the second she's the other narrator um she talks about sitting um sitting by a candle and she repeats the words like flickering 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 and it gives you this this sort of unease about you know what's lurking just beyond that candle um and there's a really um really amazingly written scene in bleak house also um where one of the main characters is killed and i'm being very um careful with my wording because even though it was published in the 1800s i don't want to spoil it because it is such <laughs> a great read um but the way he uses the darkness playing on the paintings in the room, on the shapes in the room. It's just, honestly, it's like a masterclass. Just these few pages um, of, of building tension in something that's very, um, that in the light, you know, would be absolutely, you know, normal. You know, you wouldn't think twice about it. Um, so I think when it comes to darkness, I think, I, I want to say that it, it's more, I, I feel like he uses it more as a setting to um, impact his characters rather than a character being shaped out of darkness. I, again, I would, I don't know though, I would kind of lean towards his earlier, I guess his earlier villains, uh, like Quilp and, uh, and Rigaud and things like that, because they do operate sometimes in the darkness. But I, again, I think it's a very, I think his, his darkness is more of the, um, is, is, is more of the overarching kind of dread rather than having something born out of it because he also uses fog and um whatchamacallit <laughs> um in um great expectations with uh magwitch ship um he uses this 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 tense kind of um atmosphere of the fog and the mud and the and the inability to make shapes out you know that that or to see shapes and not be really sure what they are um and that that's when magwitch rises up kind of out of that and makes his entrance so um but that's also a very like evolutionary protean ooze kind of thing um but I think it connects to the darkness as well in that ter in, in that idea of just uh, morphing the surroundings. Yeah, I, I noted um, great expectations um, uh, for the, for the, in preparation for this because that that character Magwitch is his role is is an unusual one and his his interaction with Pip is is sort of a it's like an archetypal event in the story and. It, it reminds me, the characters like him and in the same story, Miss Havisham, they're these very, very odd characters. And and like, like a meeting, the the interaction that the Pip has with them, it, it reminds me of when people report having weird things happen to them. Is it, is this, I think I've used this word before, but is this a sort of otherworldliness about these these characters and and. Well, obviously, what's happening in the story is is real, but but it's so unusual that it sort of it lends it lends this sort of weirdness to the story. Yeah, and I think I think it it's helped out by the fact that it's first person as well, so you're not getting an overarching narrator telling you what's being seen or what's being experienced. Um, you're 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 getting a a kind of a you know a firsthand terrified. <laughs> um reaction and um and i think that's important too because you know i talked about bleak house with the second the, the the third person narrator um how he's able to you know be sort of be 
omnipotent, but in a way that's very sly. Um, but it doesn't, it, but then, you know, when we get to first person with Esther or first person with Pip, um, it is those little moments that, you know, a third person narrator might not pick up of um, familiar unease. Um, if that makes sense. I often, uh, I, I, I did a, a paper once, I gave a talk um, about um, mm -hmm. the, a con the, this concept of a comfortable uncanny. It's kind of like watching a Wes Anderson film or watching a Jean-Pierre Jeunet film um, where everything's familiar, but everything's also slightly off. The colors, you know, um, the, the, the colors saturated or removed or and things are are so you know visually um uh you know set straight that um you're kind of put off but at the same time you're kind of like i want more of this <laughs> i you know like i i um it doesn't scare you off but it is uncanny because it is unfamiliar it's the familiar it's the unfamiliar and the familiar and i feel like um i feel i feel like dickens kind of is able to do that with um his first person narrations like with piff when he encounters magwitch or with miss havisham you're scared or unsettled but you want that you want you want more you're not um you're not turned off by it mm. i really like that term um comfortable and canny especially with um, wes anderson films like you you've hit the nail on the head there i think that, that's a great way to describe them um, at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned Mudfog and um, a lot of um, your, this concept kind of is, is found in the, the Mudfog papers, which Dickens wrote. And I hadn't heard very much about them. What are they and what is the story that they, con they contain? Oh, well, they are my heart. Um, <laughs> so they're these early, early um, bits of writing by Dickens. They were published... Um, in the same issues of Bentley's that had Oliver Twist. And in fact, Oliver uh, was originally from Mudfog. So the line about being born in a, in a village that doesn't need naming actually said he was born in Mudfog. And then when Dickens went and published it as a whole, he changed that line. Um, but the, the two reports um, are the ones I focus on the most. Um, and they're parodies of um, reports from the British Association for the Advance or British Association for the Advancement of Science, um, and he's kind of um, imitating um, or sat satirizing these really exciting reports, but he's making them about ridiculous things, like the like I mentioned the pug dog earlier, um, the dissection of a pug dog the rate of dancing bears begging on the streets, pick dogs pickpocketing other dogs, a whole town of robots, pretty much Dickensian robots, um, uh, that was like going to be made to be an automaton city um, where wealthy young men could go and pay a fee and they could do whatever they wanted to these automatons. They could break them. They could, you know, beat them up. Um, and they would, and the automatons would respond in kind. Um, and it was just this fascinating little peek into something that, I don't know if it was something that might have been, because I mean, Oliver Twist kind of eclipsed everything. Um, but it, it's this odd little set of writings that no one really talks about, except maybe in a footnote or here or there in a passage to say they were kind of missteps or they were just, you know, other writings. Um, but I, I just remember looking at it being like, there are robots in Dickens and no one has talked about this. <laughs> um, and that was really what pulled me to kind of just, you know, really dig into the text. And, um, I think that's where the animal he, uh, machine kind of, um, was kind of born out of it, um, because he did personify animals, um, and he did report on these, you know, machines like a fire escape that really wouldn't save anyone um, or mathematical nursery rhymes, just these weird things. And um, he wrote, I think it was to Forrester, he wrote wanting to write something like Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. And I, 
I can't help but think that could have been what Mudfog was, that he would, you know, go to have these meeting reports and they'd just get progressively more ridiculous or they would, you know, or they would, uh, you know, highlight something, you know, some contemporary issue. Um, and that's kind of, of, of where they are. So there's very little research published on them. You can find some, um, but it is very sparse. And they didn't, they weren't reprinted until 1899. Um, and then there, there wasn't, there, it was kind of like a print on demand from that point, um, you know, on like Amazon. And then Alma came out with, um, Alma Press came out with an edition a few years back, um, which um, is kind of just, you know, your generic reprint with a bit of notes at the end, which are helpful. Um, but it'd be nice to see it kind of uh, be, you know, redone some, you know, in a in an academic, you know, uh, sense. Because um, they often, the stories that are kind of around it, that kind of fall under the, the branch of the Mudfog papers are often reprinted in other anthologies, but the Mudfog papers are often left out. Um, so it's a bit, a bit of a weird one um, when it comes to contemporary or today, today's publishing. But it's just kind of like a, I, I've, I've, I've been shouting since I found it that there are robots in Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's what they are in a nutshell. It's just these um, parody reports on um, a society called uh, the Mudfog Association for the Advancement of Everything. But yeah, so it's it's already parodying it right in the title, you know, for the advancement of everything. And he really does cover really random everything. Uh, it's just a shame that, you know, they're not really, you know, looked at or read often because I think, um, you know, and this is just me going off on a tangent, but, you know, Dickens often gets a bit of a bad rap when you're in, you know, high school or um, whatever the equivalent is over here. I can never remember. Um, because you're always, you know, you're you're reading kind of the standard text, but you don't get to really experience the the oddness of Dickens. And I was very lucky that the first real Dickens I encountered was actually Bleak House. And I'll be forever grateful for that because it got me right into the strange and unusual right off the bat in undergrad. And um, I think it made me a lot more open to this kind of this kind of research and this kind of handling of Dickens rather than um sort of a you know a giant of literature you know I'm happy to be like well not really <laughs> I mean he is but also there's also this stuff that you know I think deserves attention and I think is fun um and I think would you know I think you know a high school me would have gladly read this um rather than you know something else so I do feel it, it, it is an accessible Dickens text and it's a shame that it isn't read more but that's me on my tangent feel free to cut that out <laughs> no that'd be fine I'm, I'm reading in your the synopsis that you've sent over to me the mofog mm -hmm. disappears it's yeah. a bit like Atlantis so I guess that's a spoiler sorry but um but what happens there how does it disappear so there's no real, um, I, I think Alma Press does say, you know, Mudfog was likely based on the Rochester area, but it travels, um, or rather the association travels and therefore carries the, you know, the title of Mudfog with it, but it, it, it disappears in the sense that it just, it just stops being. Um, once, you know, Dickens kind of caught on with Oliver Twist, that's what he was writing, that's what he was focused on. And then when it came to, um, you know, taking all the issues published and making them into a book and an editing that he took out Mudfog. And I don't know why. I don't think he disliked the writing. Um, but yeah, it's just textually it disappears. Um, and, he, and he literally edits it out. But there's also something to be said about the descriptions of Mudfog too, just when, when you mentioned kind of sinking like Atlantis, Mudfog is muddy <laughs> and it, it's described as being by a river and you know I could see it I could see it kind of being you know lost to time kind of in the mud <laughs> um, 
but it's it's a text it's a thing where it disappears in the text and there's no real reason and i think you know just in in in, um i don't know why i guess (laughs) i guess that's the thing um i don't i mean you can maybe parse things from his letters and whatnot um and again there's probably some Dickensian scholar shouting at me right now (laughs) I'm aware of this but there's no um yeah it it just it it just sort of disappears from the text and therefore it disappears from his catalog his bibliography um you know it's rarely ever mentioned again um and so then then he has a second disappearance where it disappears in terms of just knowing about it and so it has that kind of second death um until 1899 when it's republished you know it's the reviews at that time were very so so kind of like why are you publishing this and ruining an author's legacy or something but there were other you know slightly more positive ones um but again it's kind of like well if you read those that's it, they're so dickens they're so you know they have that dickensian essence um and yeah i think that that there's that second death that has in, in terms of just um the the canon um it's just not there it could be republished but you know it's a, no no one really discusses it and you know kind of like that saying you don't die until the last person who remembers you dies and i kind of feel it's kind of like that uh it's maybe rising up to the surface now, but <laughs> um, but before it was, you know, completely unknown. I mean, not completely, obviously, in academic circles, people knew, but, you know, you're not going to walk into a bookshop and see it. No. So did it end because it just wasn't popular at the time? Um, there was, I mean, again, it's not really clear. It, because Dickens was doing, he was doing so much for Bentley's miscellany. He was editing and contributing and... You know, he ends up getting in a fight with Bentley a bit later on. Excuse me. Um, and I honestly feel like it's a period because these these writings appear alongside the first appearances of Oliver Twist, and I feel like it's a bit like, okay, I'm going to throw you know throw it at the wall, see what sticks. And Oliver Twist stuck, and I think that you know I think it was easy to ditch. Um, it was easy to ditch Mudfog because he's he, you know he. he He's so prolific that um, it might not even have been a second thought, really. And in, in that case, and then when he went back to, you know, edit it, who knows the thought process behind it? Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's. I think I think it's just a case, you know, of of it didn't stick. Um, I'm not going to bother with it. I'm. I've got a million other things to do. <laughs> And Queen Victoria is now reading my serial. So, right. you know, I think the on in terms of importance, it was very low and almost probably non-existent at that point. But um, and he, it's easy to talk them up to, to just being, you know, these three short stories slightly connected, or well, two of them are very connected, one slightly connected. Um, and that's okay. Like, you know, like that, I mean, you see that through Dickens' career. It's, you know, it's it's not a, um, a sort of unknown but I do think if I had to, to guess <laughs> it'd be because of the the insane amount of work he was doing for Bentley's and the popularity of Oliver Twist that kind of sunk sunk mud fog right yeah but it does um, from your description of the, the characters and the stories that were in those papers um, it does lend credence to the, the idea that maybe Oliver Twist was a robot <laughs> It does. Yeah. I mean, he is a very, like, there, there's a reason that, you know, my husband gets on me because this, because I, I, I always say, oh, God, I can't stand reading Oliver Twist. And it's because Oliver is just this very archetypal, um, pre-programmed, um, standing in for, you know, a, a, a huge, you know, pro- like uh, a societal problem. It, it doesn't read human. And it's, so it's very hard then to, um, well, then again, I'm speaking also from a 21st century reader, 
whereas a Victorian reader obviously has different expectations, different tastes, different, you know, things were popular then that aren't popular now. So I can't really speak to those perceptions, but to my own, it always struck me weird that, you know, um, the way Oliver was written. I understood the way, why he was written that way um, in the context of the Victorian period, but it doesn't take away the feeling of uncanniness um, that surrounds him. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do, or I want to do with this paper um, in, in now February, <laughs> is to, you know, kind of to, to make Dickens fun, to, you know, come at it from a 21st century um, perspective and be like, look at these weird characters, let's be weird about them. And Oliver was just a, is a great place to start, as is, you know, Little Nell, I tend to kind of lump them together because they kind of serve to do the same thing. But what's interesting, um, if, let's go, to kind of go on a slight tangent in terms of Oliver being this robot, is you see something happen in the old curiosity shop that is really fascinating. He introduces a character midway through the, through the novel um, called um, she doesn't have a name at first, then another character nicknames her the Marchioness. And as the novel goes on, she becomes this amazing hero of a character. And, um, you know, Dickens would write to his biographer, Forster, um, and be like, you know, um, you know, people love, people love the Marchioness. And I always found it interesting, his reactions about the Marchioness and compared to Nell, because Marchioness becomes this fully kind of fleshed out character almost by accident. And then you have that to compare ne next to a robotic character like Nell, and you're like, I don't really want to root for the, the creepy waxwork child. I kind of want to root for this person who doesn't have a name, <laughs> who's, you know, um, I think one critic, I think it was a critic, compared the popular like compared um the character of the marchioness to one of dickens really beloved characters sam weller from the pickwick papers and i think that's true i think yeah she's probably not as popular as sam weller like you're not going to hear about her but I, she provides such a good contrast to the robotic nell the black-eyed child nell and you know what Dickens would, I think, later do. I don't, I, he didn't perfect it, but I think on accident, he just, you know, he, he, he created this character and that's, that was kind of the beauty of serials was, you know, he could develop it in real time. Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, I think it, and it's to tie, it's just to tie it back to Oliver Twist. Um, I think it's just, it's just really fun to, to take these characters and be like, okay, you know, I've, I've taught Dickens before, and I'm always trying to trying to find the fun in Dickens to make people love the writing as much as I do. And I think that's kind of where I'm going with, with this and um, why, you know, I love just shouting, you know, Oliver Twist is a creepy, creepy child who is more of a robot than anything else. I mean, I don't shout that because that's quite long but <laughs> it's a mantra. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, maybe like a, a car sticker. Yeah, yeah, very long car sticker. You need a long bumper for that. <laughs> but yeah, so I hope that answers that question. <laughs> Definitely. And just going back to Mudfog briefly as well, the idea of a, of a town being managed by a, a society is a, it's a very sci-fi concept. It's something that, you know, like a hundred years later would be you know, it would be like a very sort of pulp sci-fi concept and influ very influential in terms of things like Twin Peaks or, or any sort of story where you have a, a weird town, really. Yeah, no, that, that, I'm glad you mentioned Twin Peaks, actually, because that's exactly how it feels. Like the, the society is very much other. Um, and, you know, it, the, the short story that I haven't mentioned that's also Mudfog in Public Life with Mr. Tollrumble kind of goes into that same thing where, you know, you get these characters. Um, it's not as, as entertaining as the reports, um, but it's definitely this creation of a space that you can, you can see existing, but it is kind of just 
just slightly odd. Um, you know, it's slightly off. You know, there's a red room in the in, in the forest somewhere. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, it's it is very Twin Peaks. I I I love Twin Peaks, and I, I never thought to compare the two, but it is kind of that that weird separation again the unfamiliar and the familiar and it is very lynchian lynch would do a really good adaptation oh yeah so there's an idea (laughs) yeah that would be be brilliant (laughs) yeah yeah so i guess if i had to yeah yeah i I would definitely definitely call it lynchian and i i think that as i said the, the twin peaks comparison is spot on cool so um going back to cryptozoology are there any other sort of classic cryptids or sort of fortean entities that that appear in Dickens or 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 or, or there are characters in Dickens that have these qualities that people who know Dickens might not be aware of? I'm thinking, are there? I mean, I'm guessing there's not going to be a like a lake monster, but <laughs> but no, um, I, but maybe I like think... a we got close to to a Bigfoot, haven't mm-hmm. we? With some of the characters. <laughs> yes, yes, I was about to say. Um... In, in when you read the character of Quilp, um, you can kind of read it as sort of the missing link and or Bigfoot. Even though he's a small character, he's described as a dwarf, I believe. Um, I, I still think he has those aspects of, you know, a humanoid creature, very hairy, <laughs> very wild, you know, um, at home um, in, you know, kind of just causing havoc. Um, not that Bigfoot causes havoc if Bigfoot is listening, but um, it is kind of that, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a curiosity. And in terms of just other, other cryptids, I was really kind of into looking at another character from um, the old curiosity shop named Sally Brass. And I guess the Twin Peaks kind of comes back in here um, because... I was like, I wonder if you could read her as a tulpa of her brother, because she is this very masculine take charge. Um, she, she's, you know, she's this, she's, she, and she's this, described as grotesque, but she's kind of everything that her twin brother, Samson, isn't. And, you know, you think, okay, tulpa is, you know, from, you know, is, is powered by thoughts, you know, and what if Samson just really wanted you know, this kind of, you know, built up this kind of energy of wanting to be like that, of, you know, wanting that, does that give birth to Sally Brass, um, who, as I said, she's just, you know, um, unfairly in, you know, in modern terms, um, demonized for her work ethic and her looks and, and all of that. But um, that was, that was one thing I kind of wanted to, to, uh, well, I'm gonna, you know, kind of go into, in the paper with actual sources rather than me just kind of prattling on. But um, I think that I, you know, the idea of creating a, that putting power and, you know, into thought and that creating something, um, you know, I, I think that's very much related to cryptozoology in general as well, because, you know, um, enough belief in something, does that make it real? So that was, de- that's definitely one of the things I'm talking, I, I want to talk, like, you know, kind of explore more. Um, also, I think I mentioned the black-eyed kids with with Nell, um, and just that idea of creeping unease <laughs> um, that she seems to kind of pull from characters or that seem to surround her in descriptions. Um, and they're always, you know, watching to come in and you know, fo- not following you, but you know, they'll show up at your doorstep, and that's kind of what she does throughout the novel. Is mm. you know her her and her grandfather you know roaming the countryside to avoid Quilp, and so she's a roaming creepy child. <laughs> uh, so I think that fits that that fits in quite well. Um, again, I think I think you could also grab uh, Rigaud from Little Dorrit. I know I mentioned him before, um, and he could also fit into the Bigfoot archetype or. Um, like a missing link or, you know, just a, a humanoid monkey type thing. Um, and uh, what I really want to get into, which I haven't yet, because obviously the paper can only be so long, <laughs> um, but I do want to get into the more supernatural ones because, um, and, and I haven't because I kind of wanted to stay at the, the start of Dickens. Um, 
so I'm, you, you get kind of limited <laughs> to see what you can talk about but um i mean dickens has spontaneous combustion in one of his novels and treats it as fact i mean he yes. later yeah he, yeah he later says you know um it's kind of up to you to decide if it's you know real or not but um and i, I and so i, I kind of want to i want to dig into that more just on my own time and you know kind of go into uh more like mothman you know predicting the future that bit yeah um, maybe more maybe even more aliens i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> but that kind of tenor you know going going forward um i mean it would be for my own personal you know <laughs> gain unless that you know another conference comes up um but you know i like to keep sharp and you know keep things you know uh keep things at the ready and have things to talk about um because uh i think i mean it's a bit of a shame that Twitter's probably going to collapse because academic Twitter can be really helpful and can really, you know, you can get really good ideas, um, you know, just from chatting with other, you know, other people, you know, who are in your field or um, who are interested in what you do. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's something I definitely want to look into more. And I feel bad that I don't have as many <laughs> examples because I'm, I, as I said, I've, I've, very much confined it to Mudfog Papers, old uh, Oliver Twist, and Old Curiosity Shop, which is why I keep referencing them. But it is something I'd want to, you know, I, I if the opportunity arose to, you know, continue having a look and kind of delving into it. <laughs> Definitely. I'm just going back there to talking about Quilp and Sally Brass. Um, I mean, the idea of of a tulpa and the, the power of the mind uh, those ideas were not well they, they, they're psychological concepts aren't they as well they, there's this psychology yeah, there too yeah. and it's interesting that he was writing about that sort of before psychoanalysis and and those concepts came around and just going to to Quilp um, when you were describing him I was wondering it's like maybe he's a homunculus like he was he's like an alchemical creation yeah no Quilp is incredibly interesting because um, going back to the Marchioness, um, originally, in, in, and this is in Dickens' drafts for Old Curiosity Shop, the Marchioness was actually going to be the child of Sally Brass and Quilp. But that was X'd out, and Quilp remains childless, as does Sally Brass. Mm. Um, and I think that's very interesting in terms of just um, thinking of him as an other that he cannot reproduce um that he has a wife who for some reason likes him um but he, he they've never had a child and um the same thing with sally she's never married she's never born children again you know it, it's not so much the the need for it but the idea that the opportunity was there in terms of quilp at least he was married had a wife the expectations were to have children but he's never able to do that um, and it brings up a question of, is he the same as his wife? How, you know, um, I mean, it's a very, very um, kind of, what's a, a very kind of pinhole reading of it, um, because I, you know, obviously that's, it's a, reproduction is a completely crazy, you know, topic um, to get into, but just in terms of species, I always found that interesting, that especially that he cut it out, that, it, you know, it didn't technically happen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, with um, the work you've done so far, and and you know, as you've been saying, there's there's still so much to to research. It sounds like this could be a book. Is that what you would like to do with this stuff? Yeah, I'd like to do a lot of things with Mudfog. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I really wanted to do an academic edition of of um, Mudfog. Have it, you know, annotated, do a forward, and all of that. And I still want to do that. Um, I've also done um a bit of fictional writing in Mudfog. Um and it's and it's 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 completely different. It's a cozy detective thing, but it uses the setting of Mudfog because I just love it. I love Mudfog. And so I've written that looking for an agent, hit me up. <laughs> if anyone's listening who who wants cozy mysteries and is a literary agent. Um but um but also yeah when this whole um cryptozoology thing came like you know kind of blossomed i was like that would be kind of fun to do 
And I think, yeah, it's something I would definitely be interested in taking further. And I think it's it's really a case of getting people talking about Mudfog, um, getting a um, getting an audience, getting a um, getting people to want it pretty much like to be able to say people want to learn more about this this you know this isn't some random thing um but to have interest that's it um i want to i i think interest needs to grow and then that will that kind of thing will follow which is partially why i did the fictional bit because i'm able to obviously divorce it from the academic stuff and kind of push that out without having to worry about the whole academic side of things but there is that side of the academic world that I, I do want to I do want to do <laughs> um I am a lapsed academic of course um so it's a, uh, a little harder for me I think but it is something that I want to pursue yeah excellent well I'd definitely like to see more and I think the the Mudfog Detective show would be if it was adapted would be excellent so especially for um we're recording in the lead up to Christmas. I mean, I would definitely, that'd be great for this time of year. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, it does take place in fall, uh, the first one. But I, and I, and I, I do I do have like a plan going forward, like a, it being a series and everything. And um, because I didn't really want to lose the world. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't want to, but, and I also didn't want to be completely bogged down by academia if I was engaging with it. Um mm. So I think it's it's a good kind of um, it's a good setup <laughs> um, <laughs> currently, um, but yeah, I do want to you know get, get more on the academic side. But I think I th- you know I I honestly think the fictional aspect would probably be the f- if anything would happen that would be probably the first thing, um, and then hopefully, you know maybe a garner more interest. Who knows? <laughs> I don't want to assume too much. <laughs> Just be ready for whatever happens, really. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, Liz, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much for having me. I hope I didn't talk your ear off too much. <laughs> Not at all. If people want to find out more about you and the, the talk that you'll be giving in February 2023, how do they do that? Um, the best place right now is Twitter, um, which I'm I'm at Liz and with an E Savage, um, and there's a link tree in my bio that gives you links to um, my um, other talks. Um, one of my steampunk talks I have on there. Uh, I have an Instagram for the weird things I work with. Um, and yeah, um, and contact information is also there as well on that link tree. So if you just go to my Twitter or just shoot me a DM on Twitter, I'm pretty much always on my computer. So Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Fab, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Liz the last episode of Some Other Sphere for 2022. I think her ideas about the weirder characters and places depicted in Dickens' work offer insights into better understanding the high strangeness people experience in our own world, where it can often feel like they're drawn into someone else's story. Liz will be presenting her talk on A Beginner's Guide to Dickensian Cryptozoology at the Dickens Day Symposium being held at the School of Advanced Study University of London on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. This will also be available online after the event if you can't make it there in person. Please consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some of the sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support Some Other Sphere with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, have a wonderful Christmas, and I hope you'll join me again soon in 2023 for another episode of Some Other Sphere.